Hi, I'm Phil Arco. I'm the coordinator of the National Link Coalition. We are the National Resource Center on the link between animal abuse and human violence. And it's my pleasure to be interviewed on the Animal Academy podcast. Welcome to the Animal Academy podcast. I'm Allison White, and I'm a licensed clinical social worker who specializes in the human-animal connection. This podcast will showcase professionals who share their areas of expertise in an ongoing series of interviews, and you are there. Their input, stories, and knowledge will help us all understand that we are the ones that actually end up learning from the animals. This is the Animal Academy Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Animal Academy Podcast. In previous episodes, I spoke with two young people who have participated in dog performance events and who are active in programs that help facilitate animal-related activities. Today's guest is a judge and dog trainer who is energetic And I'm impressed with her ability to inspire others to work positively with their dogs. She is a teacher for young adults and has several exciting programs that we will be discussing. I'd like to welcome my guest, Charlotte Milziner. Welcome, Charlotte. I'm so glad to be speaking with you today. Well, thank you, Allison. I'm so happy to be here. I really appreciate the opportunity. Charlotte, I've been looking forward to our conversation all week. Could you tell me a little bit about how you got started in the dog world? I probably got started in the dog world partly as a result of our next-door neighbor. He had taught and worked with dogs in the military all through World War II and after that. When I grew up, we had anywhere from about one to a dozen German shepherds that were highly trained uh, living next door to us. Mm -hmm. He had one beautiful, big male that he could even send over the six-foot-tall fence between us. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, that would patrol our property at night. As a little girl, it was just such a wonderful thing when uh, they would pick me up over the fence and and let me be with the dogs for any length of time. We lived out in the country, and people at that stage, I mean, I'm I'm up in my 60s now, but people at that that stage out in the country used to say, oh, we have all this, this litter of unwanted puppies. We'll take them out to the country and let them out of the car, and they'll run and be free. And they weren't. They most often got run over by a car. They were scared. They were frightened. And I used to take a sandwich and go out there and eat to see if I could catch the puppies. Unfortunately, my dad had had to have the rabies treatments when he was a child. Mm. And so he was always frightened of me with dogs. I'd get to have them for a few days, and then I'd go to school. And when I came home, they were gone. And he was taking them to the pound. So I never got to keep any of these little dogs and unwanted animals. But I would uh, be gone like all day. Mom said I'd get up in the morning and and go outside and after my breakfast. And they'd find me with baby bunnies and holding a raccoon and and, uh, following a skunk around. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Boy, was I lucky. Uh Well, and Charlotte, but, that, uh, that story is a wonderful story, and, uh, you know, not that you had to say goodbye to some of these puppies, but it oh, really, and we'll talk a little bit later in the episode, but uh-huh. it really shaped the work that you've done with young people. Oh, yeah. Actually, one of my friends, I had been doing a dog bite safety program in the schools. One of my friends there said that the 4-H clubs in our area had lost their instructor, and she said, you should do that. I said, I don't want to do that, you know. I said, but I tell you what, I'll see if I can find you an instructor. And I called every training club and every PetSmart, everybody that I knew of in Mm -hmm. dogs, and nobody wanted to work with kids. And I thought, what's wrong with kids? Yeah. Um, So she said, Charlotte, you can do this. And so I said, okay, I'll give it a shot. Why not? What do I have to lose? You know, the worst Mm -hmm. that happens is I do it for one year, I don't do it again. That was how I got started. I find uh, that very first year, I ended up telling one of my friends who was saying, you're working with 4-H kids? Oh, my God, how can you stand it? And I said, I will put my kid trainers up against yours with the same amount of experience any day. Uh. You ready for a challenge? (laughs) And they were awesome. 
the person who had it before me said that the adults were just dumping their kids off and, and leaving them on her. And I said, oh, that's not going to happen here. So I devised all kinds of things that the parents could help with. We worked with kids where uh, the kids would have training games that they were expected to play with their parents. The parents were in charge of a game that I put together called My Dog Can Do That, Mm -hmm. in which I had 20 different behaviors. And if the kid thought that their dog could do that particular behavior, let's just say it's a down, they got to come over and try it. Now, they only got to try one attempt, and they only got to ask the dog one time. There was no luring. There was no compelling. Mm -hmm. But if they did it, then they got a biscuit for their dog. I had treats for them. They were just little peppermints. And uh, they got a greenie. A greenie was a piece of yarn that they got to put on their leash. Mm -hmm. And the first couple of kids that tried that, you know, there's always some kids that will buy into programs like this. Mm -hmm. But the first couple of kids were like, oh, boy, I want to do this, you know, and they try, and then they would realize that they were asking their dog for a down three, four, five, six times before their dog would actually do it in some cases. Some of them had it, and the other kids who thought they were just way too cool to, to bother trying something like that, would you'd see them looking at this other kid, and he's got like five or six greenies hanging off his leash, and I don't have any. And then pretty soon that kid would come up and say, I think I can do a recall. Mm-hmm. and it was awesome. I had, uh, the first couple of years, I had, my husband and I were the, were the only two instructors, and he could reach some of the kids as a man that perhaps didn't want to reach me, mm-hmm. but he kind of dropped out after a while, and I, I begged and borrowed other people that would say, you know, this was really interesting, but our kids put on a show. I had to, I had to beg and borrow to get them to be stewards in a trial, the first trial that, that um, I, I said, my kids can help relieve all of your stewards, and they can do the stewarding. And I was told, well, I'm not going to be babysitting a bunch of kids. I said, don't worry about it. You won't have to. By, I guess, maybe about two or three hours into the trial, the person, that particular person came up to me and said, your kids are great. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> And asked uh, asked if they could have the kids at the next trial, too. So our kids have just been awesome. I have never had a year that I thought, this is it. I, I just can't take this. I've had ones where I didn't have enough help, and mm-hmm. I felt overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. Because you have to realize when you're working with dogs and kids, you don't have, and I've had as many as 53 students. Wow, that's, that's a lot. That's actually 106 students. Mm-hmm. Because you're teaching not only the dogs, but also the kids. Mm -hmm. But the benefits of working with kids, for me, uh, so much I've learned. So many different techniques. And when to use what techniques. Some instructors will keep their classes very small and work with six people, maybe ten people. And they work with maybe that number of people over a course of a year. And I might have 53. Some come in, some drop out. And some stay with me for years. Some kids started at eight years old and stayed with me all the way until they aged out of 4-H. Some of them, like like David and Ella, became very high-level competitors. And I've been so proud of those kids. Some of them today are veterinarians, horse trainers, moms. I'm starting to get some kids now that of my kid of my first set of kids. <laughs> and that's just a wonderful feeling. Oh, that's exciting, Charlotte. Uh, yeah. So, Charlotte, I have a question. How did you get buy-in from both the kids and the parents? Because with dog training, it's, you know, it takes a lot of commitment. Was that difficult to get the buy-in? For the kids and the parents, the ones that are not committed do, do weed themselves out somewhat. It might take them a while. I had a couple of parents that would say, well, this just isn't worth a time. I'm not going to stay this. I thought I was going to get my dog trained for free. Mm, and okay. it is free. Mm-hmm. but the kid still has to do it. This is very often the first time that a child is empowered in any kind of relationship in their whole life. Eight, 10, 12 years old, they've always been the underling in any relationship with another one. And this is the time that not only if their dog succeeds, do they succeed, but, but the other way around, too. Every year, I think almost every year, uh, the majority of years, I have had a parent who has walked up to me and said, Charlotte, 
you may not know this, but little Joey, he has ADHD. And I just wanted you to know how wonderful he's doing since he started 4-H and doing the dogs. This has just been great. He's nicer to his little brothers and sisters. He's kinder. He's concentrating better. And it's all because of the dogs. And that just does my heart such good. It really does when I know that I've reached a kid. Why do you think that is? You know, what are some of the long-term benefits of having young people involved in raising and training animals? What does that really teach them? Oh, the research out there is fantastic on kids and dogs. One of the first things that happens if you even start as an infant, we know that children, uh, babies that are exposed to dogs, have fewer allergies and eczema, I believe, is another one of the mm-hmm. things that is almost not existent when children are, are exposed to animals at an early age. Taking it on up to the age where they actually start working with the dog, they have a higher self-esteem because they actually are able to have that empowered relationship. They tend to be more compassionate and empathetic. And, and what more would you want for a good citizen than to have a child who has empathy? Mm-hmm. They have better cognitive skills specifically in areas of communication and leadership and in problem-solving. Because I'll actually ask these kids, the way I teach them might be, okay, we want to teach our dogs to run down this set of jumps here. How are we going to start that? Because the dog is faster than us, and he doesn't know that he's supposed to jump all four of these jumps at one time. What would you do? And there'll be one kid out there, at least, in, in the group, that will say, well, I'd start with the last one, or I'd start with the first one and then add the second one. Mm-hmm. There you go, problem solving. Exactly. There we go. We're figuring out how to take a chained behavior and break it into its simplest parts. So first of all, the dog even has to be able to move with the child and to jump. Mm-hmm. So the dog, we break it even down farther than that. I also teach the kids through positive motivation so that if they happen to let's say, reward something that they didn't want, the worst thing that happens is they see it again. Mm -hmm. But if you use aversives, what ends up happening is you definitely will end up punishing something that you wanted, and then your chances of seeing it again are very slim. Mm -hmm. It's much better if a child who has the family dog, and usually family dogs come into the um, situation of the classroom thinking that their kid is a litter mate, Mm -hmm. not a leader. Mm Mm-hmm. And so we have to change that dynamic just to get started with. And that's where we start with a positive motivation. The kid becomes the controller of good stuff. The kids become responsible to care for the dogs with the support of the parents. So they're getting to feel that support of the parents who say, oh, here's the food. You want to um, be able to put it on the floor for them. We know that children who work with animals and dogs, cats, horses, just about any kind of animal, raises their levels of serotonin and dopamine, which calm, obviously that calms the mind and, and uh, improves the mood. And we'll find that kids who have been sullen little so-and-sos you know, to mm-hmm. mom and dad are suddenly speaking to them clearly without that intonation of the 14-year-old hair-flipping girl who's, my parents are so dumb, she's all of a sudden treating mom like an equal. Mm -hmm. And as a matter of fact, my daughter was one of our leaders for years and and still comes in and helps the kids once or twice a year with showmanship because that was her area of expertise. The main thing that I think about these kids working with the dogs is that the skills that they develop, such as the improved communication and leadership, stays with them for life. It's not something that they learn, and six months later, they've lost it. Well, I was impressed when I when I spoke with Ella and David in previous episodes about how they raised show dogs and how supportive their families have been mm-hmm. throughout the years. And they oh, yeah. they exhibit all those qualities that you just mentioned, goal setting, oh, yeah. um, leadership. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the things that I also do with using positive motivation training is with that first night, I have this long, drawn-out story that I tell about how to use a yes signal. And it's a reward marker, basic conditioned reinforcer. Everybody has to practice while I throw a ball. Actually, usually what I use is a little stuffed dolphin, and we are all dolphin trainers now. We're going to teach Flipper to jump higher out of the water. So they have to mark the moment when I throw Flipper up into the air of that highest point 
the apex of the jump. And sure enough, they'll, you know, they'll be, yes, 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 all over the place, even after Flipper has hit the floor and splashed us all, <laughs> imaginary. Uh-huh. And then there will be a bunch of kids that will start getting it right. Okay. And we throw it up until we get everybody correct. Then I turn to the parents and I say, all right, parents, let's hear you do this. Generally, they get it a little bit faster than the kids do. Mm-hmm. But then when I explain how we take this yes signal and we apply it to the dog's behavior, one of the things I'll give everybody, you know, tasks to do for the week, I will ask the parents to find at least five things this week that you liked that your child did. Oh, that's great. I don't care if he just wakes up in the morning, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. Yay, you're still breathing. <laughs> <laughs> Mark it. And let the kid know you appreciated that. So when you say mark it, it means mark the exact behavior that you want to have repeated, right? Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes, (laughs) well, and sometimes, you know, when I when I work with clients, they find it difficult to even with within themselves find the things that they do right. You know, they tend to focus on the things that need to be improved because that's why they're coming in for therapy anyway. Mm -hmm. So when I ask them to think about the things that you're actually doing that you want to continue, it's kind of a it's it's hard. You You have to change that mindset. Mm -hmm. Yes. On the first night of class, I ask everybody to introduce themselves and to introduce their dog and tell me something you like about your dog. Because if you say it any other way, everybody is saying, oh, he tore up grandma's rocker and he bolts out the door and he drags me all over the place. You know, yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Blah, blah, blah. Everybody does that. But I want you to I want you to remember why you liked this dog in the first place. And every once in a while during class, I will say, somebody tell me you've learned something about your dog. What is it? And I love it when kids say, he's really smart. (laughs) 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 Then you've done your job right. Right. (laughs) And every week we ask for a brag. Now, I usually hand out greenies for brags, too. And the brag might be, he was chasing a rabbit, and he came back when I called. Well, that's huge. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) That's an awesome one. That's way above. You've been doing your job right. Here's a greenie. (laughs) (laughs) So, Charlotte, you're such a good uh, cheerleader for these kids. Oh, you kind of have to be a little bit. But you know what? It works on adults, too. Mm -hmm. I actually learned that greenie trick from Terry Ryan internationally known animal trainer. And I kind of thought the same thing at first. I thought, well, that'll never work with adults. And I tried it in one of my grown-up classes, and they were all like, "Uh, my dog can do that. (laughs) (laughs) I want to do that. I want a greenie. You know, even the the guys that were just way too cool for it started to, you know, "Uh, my dog can sit, you know. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And you get everybody buying into it. It actually ends up being a fun game. Well, you know what just came to mind, Charlotte, is how important developmentally and emotionally it is to have animals as part of our lives when we're growing up. I talked to my nephew many uh, years ago about the importance of him being a four-year-old, having his first puppy, and Mm -hmm. that dog was through, you know, went with him through all of those developmental stages and teenage stage, and that was the one thing that was a solid relationship through all those ages. Our companion animals are one of our last good connections for most people to the natural world to remind us that we are animals ourselves. We just happen to be really cogent ones and that these animals give up to us in ways that we will never be able to reduplicate in a human relationship. And it's something that, I mean, you touched on it just now. Everybody has a life-changing dog that I, every good dog person I know has had a life-changing dog. And that dog isn't always your best dog. He's not always your first dog, but he's that dog that leads you down a new journey. And that journey will never be reduplicated. Nobody will, I think, will ever love you like a dog does. Dogs Mm -hmm. accept us into their relationship like a pack member. Mm -hmm. And the pack member is everything. And it's wonderful to see that relationship develop and change in dogs and kids, or dogs and and adults, too. When a a student comes in and the dog is barely aware they're at the end of the leash, and then 
I've been privileged at times to get to see this relationship actually switch, where I just happened to be looking at the student and I saw it happen. And the dog looks up at the kid, or, or in the one that I'm thinking of right now was a grown-up woman, and you see the change in the dog's eyes. You are now everything to me. And it's just its a beautiful moment. A lot of dog trainers I know end up disliking teaching beginning classes. And I'm not sure why, but I have never lost that. I have never lost the desire to teach beginning classes. I love teaching my upper-level stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, Don't get me wrong, but I love seeing students go ahead. But seeing that moment where they come in that first night and the dog's yanging on them over here and barking at the dog (laughs) next to them and they they don't sit, they don't down, they sure are not coming to you. And then that last night of class when you're doing a 20-foot recall and they're doing a sit-stay and a down-stay and the dog looks at them with a totally different expression in his eyes. That is a, is magic. And the, the kids feel that, right? Yeah. It's that unconditional love and they see yeah. that immediate feedback. Their efforts are paying off by the end of yeah. the class. It's wonderful to see the number of times that a kid, uh, when they are asked, who's somebody that you can tell your problems to? And about 20, I think it's 22 percent or somewhere around a quarter of children, one out of four will say, my dog Mm -hmm. or my cat, Mm -hmm. you know, I can tell them my problems. I used to have a client when I worked in community mental health and I would have my therapy dog in my office Mm -hmm. and she would come by and and would say, Allison, could I just talk to your dog today? <laughs> she didn't hurt my feelings at all. So she got down on the floor and I just did my paperwork and she just had a chat with my dog. And yeah, that's what she needed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the release of stress and mm-hmm. those increased serotonin levels that end up end up coming so easily to us. Just to be able to sit and pet an animal and for that moment all your problems are behind you. You're right. Yeah. And Charlotte, besides 4-H, you've done so many other programs with kids. Do you want to talk a little bit about your other programs? Some of the things, let's see. I was one of the originators. Um, I brought up the idea of the Canine Olympics, which is now the Canine Games. Mm -hmm. It's a yearly opportunity at Purina Farms for people to come in, just a casual dog owner, to come in and try. Oh, gosh, we've had as many as about 15 different canine sports, but usually it's around 11 or 12 different canine sports at a beginner level, you know, to try agility before you put $95 into it and find Mm -hmm. out you don't really like it. Mm -hmm. The kids' classes there that we have, junior handler and tricks and things like that, have been very, very popular. Agility, obviously, is very popular. Sometimes we'll have things like uh, terrier races, and people have never tried those before. What are those? That's where you, uh, there's a couple of different kinds. Of course, there's going to ground where, you know, the, the terrier actually has to, has to go through a tunnel, mm-hmm. to, and, and it's a small maze to try to find a rat that's in a, a cage there. We don't want any rats getting killed in that case because these are tame rats. They also have a place where you might have, let's say, four little terriers going running down a way, and the first terrier through a hole in a board at the end of it wins. Oh, that was funny to watch one time. I saw like four Jack Russell Terriers and a and a Boston Terrier in a race. The Jack Russells got down there first, but then the Jack Russells started arguing about who was going to go through the hole. <laughs> and the Boston came right behind him and didn't get involved in that argument and just snuck right through. The oh, hole. that's hysterical! <laughs> a smart little guy. Uh-huh. <laughs> I always enjoyed Canine Olympics. Um, now you said it's called the Canine Games, but I used yeah. to work the agility area and help people oh, yeah. just learn how to navigate the equipment. It was so much fun. Now, the Canine Olympics, do you have coupons that they give you and you just get yeah. to try out the different areas? Yeah. we. Um, I don't know if they still do it this way because I'm not even connected to it anymore, but they used to give you about five tickets for your entry fee. And you could go and try these at any of the different sports. You could come back and get more if you want to. And some people would do something like go, go straight over to agility and spend all five tickets at agility. And then they'd come back and buy more. Mm-hmm. But some people would shop around a little here and a little there. And, 
And then they decide, wow, this one was really fun. We liked that one. Afterwards, you would get a ticket for coming back. And when you had collected five or a stamp on, on your little passport sort of thing, and then you'd come back and you would get a certificate for your dog that your dog had survived the Canine Olympics. That was always fun. Well, I think that's a that's a terrific idea. And what I noticed from the adults is they got a chance to act like kids. Yeah, they did. Oh, yeah, to get to see that. Mm-hmm. Um, I always would give out treats. I would have all of our people that are wandering around, you know, answering questions and stuff like that, a bag of treats to give. And I would tell them, I want you to give this to people or dogs that look happy. Mm-hmm. And I remember one where I just saw this woman, she just had the biggest grin on her face, and she had a big English Mastiff with her. And, and you know, I think nobody, the Mastiffs just show every expression on their faces. And this dog just had the biggest grin on his face, and I said, that is the happiest dog I've seen today. Where have you just come from? And she said, lure coursing. Oh. We're going to get another ticket right now. <laughs> So I gave her a biscuit for her dog, which he and pretty much enveloped my whole hand when he took it. But, um, you know. <laughs> so then you go and you find a towel somewhere and you wipe it off. <laughs> well, Charlotte, when I when I think about the, the games at Purina Farms, I just think of people having fun. It was like a carnival for oh, yeah. animals and their their people. Yes. It's an opportunity. I mean, so many people got got their start at the canine games in agility or obedience or even tracking and and, uh, terrier races and backpacking, all kinds of things. And I've had people who who I've seen at an agility trial or something. I said, wow, you're doing really good, you know. And she said, oh, I got started just a year ago at this thing at Purina, and it's called the Canine Olympics. You should try it sometime. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll be happy to. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. So there's really some similarity between the Canine Olympics or Canine Games and the programs that you set up at 4-H, their introduction yeah. to the animal world and the things yeah. that you can do positively with your dogs. Yes. The kids get to go to camp. They get to walk in a and a parade, uh, the St. Patrick's Parade, at least most of the time. They you know, mm-hmm. we didn't have it this year. Let's see, what else do they do? Oh, they, they assist at dog shows. We usually put on a couple of events. Cam- oh, the wonderful thing, Clark Gaffke is somebody who called me several years ago, and I knew his mom, and I, I kind of have a, a bit of a memory of him when he was a kid. Ann Gaffke is a trainer in Columbia, Missouri. Mm. And he grew up around 4-H and things like that, too. Well, he was an adult now, and he wanted to have his kids in in 4-H. And he said, I'd like to help. And I said, oh, God, thank you, thank you, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) It was one of those years that I couldn't find anybody to help. And I had, like, 38 kids. And I thought, what am I going to do? How can I even keep that many kids active, even if I've got parents working and, and got, you know, some of the more advanced kids helping? And Clark started a drill team. So we have a traveling drill team now that works all around the area. He also does some marvelous work around the nation with nonprofits. And he got our kids into a pilot program down at SeaWorld in Florida. And they get to go and help the trainers, and they get to do a campout thing. Oh, how uh, fun. Next to the animals. This is so much fun yeah. for the kids. I would have loved and, to do that. Oh, yeah. I'm ready to go. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> hey, we need another instructor if you're if you're up for it. <laughs> I would love that. Uh, <laughs> we can always use another instructor. These kids get to get to do all these things. We've actually now this year or next this coming year, we're talking about expanding the camp. We didn't get to have it at all this year mm. due to the COVID restrictions. Mm-hmm. But next year we're actually talking about having one camp just for our kids in Missouri. And another camp for kids in the surrounding states or anybody who wants to come. A lot of these kids that come to us from around Missouri have nobody that will work with them in their county. And if I I can put a a plug in, it's if you are an advanced dog trainer who does not mind working with kids, please go check out your local county extension office and see do they have anybody teaching 4-H kids in your county. Because you're going to get far more benefits from this than you will ever imagine. Mm-hmm. 
and you'll be changing these kids' lives. You're shaping our next generation of dog handlers. You're shaping our next generation of parents. And leaders, too. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That, that's awesome, Charlotte. And Charlotte, I am really enjoying our conversation. We have lots more to discuss. How about taking a short break? Are you okay with that? Sure. Okay. Yeah, let's do it. We'll be right back. Make your podcast soar with the Editor Corps. The one question every podcaster needs to ask themselves is, why am I still editing my own podcast? We all know that editing your own podcast is the worst part of the podcast experience. Get the editing off your plate and reclaim more time to make more content with the Editor Corps. Affordable, talented, experienced podcast editors are ready to take your podcast literally to the next level to make it soar. Make your podcast soar with the Editor Core. EditorCore.com. That's EditorCore.com. Do you like what you're hearing during this episode of the Animal Academy podcast? If so, consider having your business, organization, or effort connect with me to see how you can sponsor or be featured inside this podcast. Visit my website over at AnimalAcademyPodcast.com and let's have a conversation. Thought about a career in voiceover? Need a great, cost-effective on-hold message for your organization or business? Don't know where to start? Check out The Voice Farm, your one-stop shop for voiceover needs. Check it out now by accessing The Voice Farm at voicefarmers.com and see what difference can be made with a company that is truly outside the box. From The Voice Box, voicefarmers.com. That's voicefarmers.com. Welcome back, everyone. Charlotte, we were just talking for the break about the benefits of raising kids with their animals and the benefits of training and what that leads to positive communication, better communication, you know, in job settings. Just I, I can't go through a whole list of all the positives that, uh, that we have with our animals, yeah. right? So, Charlotte, you said that you were also part of a dog bite prevention program. Do you want yeah. to talk a little bit about that? Yes, we took dogs that were all uh, therapy dog certified and specifically socialized children, and we would take them into area schools around here. The reason why I started doing that, I had adopted my daughter from Russia. She did not speak English, so when I went to a dog show, I used to take a babysitter along with me. Well, she was a pretty active little girl, and Mm -hmm. even with the babysitter's help, we could not keep her out of other dogs' faces. I turned Mm. to look at her at one point after, you know, just glancing away for a moment, and she had grabbed this big male Bouvier de Flanders face whiskers. Mm, Goodness. And she was getting ready to plant a kiss in the middle of his his lips, (laughs) and the dog was growling. Oh, gosh. And the handler was pulling the dog back saying, get your kid away from my dog. And she was right. Mm -hmm. She was absolutely right. I needed to have better control of my child. And so I went home that evening, and I turned on my computer, and we were just, you know, learning how to surf the web and stuff like that. That's how long ago this was. Mm-hmm. And the things that I found were frightening of, let's say, plastic surgeons who were bragging about getting a child's face back to near cosmetic normalcy. Oh, gosh. Oh, missing. Oh, it was bad. Okay, I'm not going to go into any more of that. But I started the idea that... Kids end up running up to dogs all the time in our area, at least back then, Mm -hmm. and they would just start petting your dog. Whether or not he was socialized to children, whether or not he was, let's say, a support dog of some sort. So I started researching this, and I put together a program along with the Spirit of St. Louis Samoyed Club, and we started presenting this program. From the very first time that we presented it, we had four Samoyeds in there. And the kids got the idea that it was okay to pet those white dogs, but you can't pet any of those other dogs. Mm. So I thought, okay, we got to get lots of other dogs in here, different types and mm-hmm. sizes and looks and stuff. We presented all thousands of, of children. Um, I taught North County Obedience Training Club, and I believe the other club that I taught to do our program was Dalmatians. And we started getting dogs going out to schools all the time. It has dropped tremendously, and partly due to PETA. 
PETA actually got wind of what we were doing and started going to schools and saying dogs have no business being in schools. They're dangerous. Well, out of over 13,000 children, we never had an episode of a dog even so much as growling at a child. It was undoing everything that you worked so hard to do. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And pretty soon, only the a few schools would let us in. And then it got to where they got too scared to let us in anymore. But we would start out and show kids how to ask a person to pet their dog and how to actually hold your hand out in a sniffing hand. Mm-hmm. Then we would get into things like what to do if a growling dog approaches you. You know, of wrap your arms around you and look away from the dog. I know you want to look towards him, but look away. And that one would be very hard. I'd walk through the kids, and, and they, they'd make like a tree is what we would call it. Mm-hmm. Wrap your arms around you and grow your roots in the ground. Don't run. And so then the kids would go ahead, and, and they'd look away. And, you know, you'd see them looking back a little bit every once in a while here. And then we'd talk about what to do if you're riding your bicycle and a dog starts to chase you. Get off and put your bicycle between you and the dog. What to do if a dog that you know is suddenly loose and he's running around the neighborhood, don't try to catch him. Mm -hmm. If you know whose dog he is, go and knock on that door. Oh, we had a number of things that we did about that. The last part of it would be how to feed a dog a treat Mm -hmm. with an open hand, not not clenched in the your little fingertips. Mm-hmm. And that one was all of the dog's favorite parts, and I think that's why the dogs never missed a moment of, of the program because they know, okay, <laughs> we're coming up on the treat part. And then we'd let the kids come up and, and give the dogs a treat. Oh, we also did the, the one that probably could have been one of the most effective ones, which was how to, what to do if a, a dog actually attacks you. And we had already explained that, uh, you know, you can't outrun the dog who here thinks they're fast. And, of course, every little five-year-old raises their hand. You know, every little kindergartner thinks they're the fastest kid on earth. When they understand that they're not, then here's what you do. You roll up in a little ball. And so all the kids would have to make like a rock. We had just marvelous responses from those. I had always thought it was one of those programs that no news is good news. Mm-hmm. because if we hear anything, that means some kid got bit. And I think after the very first one, it was a couple of weeks later, I was coming out of PetSmart, and this woman and her, her little boy came up, and he said, it's Safety Sam, it's Safety Sam. And he runs up, and the mom just reaches out and starts to pet King. And the, the little boy pushed his, her hand away and said, no, no, Mama, you have to ask the owner first. And then he showed her the whole thing, how to make a sniffing hand and how to feed a dog a treat. And I thought, oh, wow. How cute. Yeah. After we had done a few more, again, I was thinking, okay, well, that was nice. But, you know, I mean, again, no news is good news. And we heard about one of the teachers who had been there. And she used to walk with a couple of her teacher friends every day. And there was a home with a couple of Rottweilers behind a fence that they used to pass all the time. And these Rottweilers, of course, would bark and growl at them as they passed by. Well, one day the gate was open. And the teacher who had been to one of our seminars, uh, one of our programs, said, stop, stop. And, you know, the, the women started to back up, and she said, stop, wrap your arms around you and look away from the dogs. Well, she and one of the other teachers did just that. The third teacher jumped up and ran. And guess who got bitten? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that was a lesson learned. I did not want to hear that part of it, but I was really glad to hear that the mm-hmm. other two were safe. Mm-hmm. She had us back every year for the longest time, I think until she retired. Well, and you also wrote a training manual or prevention program for the visiting nurses. Is that right? Yes. Yes. I wrote a book called Good Dogs Bite Two for visiting nurses. It's out of print now, but it was uh, specifically for professionals who return to a home on a regular basis. I had no idea how many visiting nurses and and postal workers and people like that get bitten regularly. I mean, it's tens of thousands of them, Mm -hmm. um, if you take all of those into account. It's amazing. I mean, I've had people who uh, have been sick that have been uh, students of mine. One of them particularly had uh, MS, Mm -hmm. and her dog 
was very protective of her. She called me up about 4 o'clock in the morning one morning and said, I've had an exacerbation of symptoms and I'm paralyzed. I can't get out of bed. I called the EMTs. My dog won't let them in the bedroom. You have to come, Charlotte, quick. So I'm armed with my little cheese stick. <laughs> Luckily, she lived close, you know, so I drove over there. I got there right about, you know, just, I, I just threw on clothes and dashed for it. And the dog, sure enough, the EMTs had already called the police. The police weren't there yet. And I just started chucking pieces of cheese down there and slipped it. <laughs> that was smart. On the dog. Yeah. You know, I thought, gee, that was hard. Well, part of it, too, was the dog knew me. Mm-hmm. But the dog had felt how vulnerable she was. And the dog was reacting to that. The dog wanted to protect her from these intruders. And so that was why I started writing and started researching techniques about this. I had a, a UPS man who used to come and shake his car keys and, you know, to see if, if the dogs were outside mm-hmm. or not. Mm-hmm. And the dogs would just go ballistic. So I thought, well, that's certainly not one of the techniques you want to use. So I started researching it and found that there, there was quite a bit of research on this. But nobody that I could find, well, there was one. Bully Brands, I think, had written um, something of a manual along those lines, and I wanted to make it a little more user-friendly and write it specifically for visiting nurses, of telling them, you know, you can bring treats with you. And the visiting nurse person who owned it, that franchise at that point actually bought little those little tiny milk bones and mm-hmm. gave them all handfuls of them. Because these nurses had no idea. They also did not know how to read a dog's body language, mm. which was one of the other things we it's did. It's really important. So we presented this manual, and uh, I was very proud of it. I got it shortly after I got my certification, wrote it right around that time, right after my certification in canine behavior. And it, when I look back on it now, it really sounds kind of clinical, you know, lots of mm-hmm. big words like habituation. You know? mm-hmm. So I pr- should probably rewrite it again and make it a little more friendly again. And take out the big words. When you were talking about that, I was thinking about social media all of a sudden and yeah. how you can see little kids around animals, but you can see that there's something wrong with that picture. The animal is not liking it very much, right? But it's right. one of these photos that looks so cute because this baby is all over it's, this big animal. And it's a little yeah, bit he's scary. rolling his eyes over at the kid. And they yeah. say, oh, you can see the love in his eyes. No. No, you can't, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My family, uh, my nieces, actually had one of those cases. And before I even I saw that, that picture and they were saying, oh, she just hangs on him and rolls on him and he'll never hurt her. And you can see this rolling and growing anger in the dog's face. And one of my other nieces wrote back and said, stop that immediately. Mm-hmm. And uh, the number of times that I have had, uh, I used to speak at Parents as Teachers, which is now, I think, Parent Educators. Okay. Back then, we called it Parents as Teachers. And I used to speak to those were almost all brand new parents who had a dog first before they got a child because they thought, well, let's try parenting on the dog. And if we don't kill the dog, then, you know, kids should be easy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And their, their idea was that the dog would love the child just like you know, they do, and Mm -hmm. that's not the case at all. One parent, so I would go through all of the various levels that a dog will go through of aggression before they actually get to that first bite. Over 60% of of children are bitten before age 12. Oh, my goodness. I had no idea. Most of those are bitten before age 5, and they're bitten by the family dog with no prior history of biting. They're usually bitten when the dog is eating or sleeping. One parent that I had mentioned here, I go by Dr. Ian Dunbar, from the yeah. who started the Association of Pet Dog Trainers, once said at a seminar that I was at, leaving a child alone in a room with a dog is like leaving two toddlers alone in a room. Only mm-hmm. one of them has a pair of scissors. Mm. Yeah, so I would go through all of these rules that, you know, these young parents should be careful about with their dogs and warning signs they should look for. 
and one parent said to me that, what does it mean when a dog does this? And she made snapping sounds with her, or, you know, snapping Mm -hmm. gestures with her Mm -hmm. fingers. And I said, now that's this one, and I pointed to air snapping. Mm -hmm. And I said, that's one of your last warnings before the dog buys the child. What is the child usually doing? at the time that the dog starts to do this. And she just laughed kind of sheepishly. And she said, oh, (laughs) he's usually hitting him with a toy. And how old is your child? And she said, 14 months old. And I said, okay. And what is your reaction to this? And she said, well, I explained to her that the doggy doesn't like this. I said, your kid isn't old enough to care yet. She will not have empathy until she's about three to three and a half years old. Their little brains just don't have it at this age. Telling her that the doggy doesn't like it, it means nothing to her. You're spitting in the wind. And she said, well, what should I do? And I said, you need to break that up immediately. And you need to control your child. Distract them both is my mm-hmm. advice on this. Mm-hmm. Don't go charging in there screaming and yelling or, you know, the dog's going to get upset, the kid's going to cry, and, you know, nothing's going to get any better. But what you need to do is to give the child something more wholesome to do with the dog. Because mm-hmm. that's only going to get dog, worse. Yes, and you need to give the dog an escape outlet. When I've gone to some parents' homes on some of the research that I've done, the children are, are cornering the dog, and the dog has no way to get out. And what we did in one case was just to pull the couch away from the wall a few inches, mm-hmm. and the dog was able to get back there. And the child was a little too big to follow at okay. that point. Well, that was smart. Yeah. Yeah, that one was pretty clever on yeah. everybody's part. One dog I thought was extremely clever at this. We, I had told the mom that this little boy cannot have his toys that he is hitting the dog with at the same time the dog is in the room. So we were using child safety gates to keep the dog away when he plays with those toys, which is fine. He wants to play with the toys. Okay, they're his. He can play with those, but the dog has to go in the other room because she did not see any reason that she should stop the boy from hitting the dog. Mm -hmm. The dog should just take it. uh, He's a 120-pound greater Swiss mountain dog. There is only so long he's going to take this Mm -hmm. from a 20-month-old child. That technique went pretty good for a while, mm-hmm. and then she decided that she just didn't want to comply on that at all. Mm-hmm. The dog ran up to the child when he started swinging his new little hockey sticks, and he took the hockey sticks away from the child and tried to bury him behind the couch. <laughs> I thought that was very clever on the dog's That's part. That's very clever. Rather than bite the kid, yeah. take him away. Yeah. And she was very upset with me and uh or with a dog and ended up rehoming that dog mm. but the dog found a wonderful home so good good really worked out glad there's a happy ending yes and charlotte you were involved in so many different projects are there any other projects that you'd like to discuss are you writing more books is, yeah I'm, i am writing more books i have a, a series that i would love to fish back out and dust off and actually go ahead and publish, and it is called Dogs with Jobs. And they are chapter book level, about second to third grade, uh, Mm -hmm. just about what age kids would be able to start training dogs somewhat independently. Mm -hmm. These were stories that I wrote about dogs who have actual jobs. The first one, uh, the dog becomes, she is surrendered to a border collie who is surrendered to the the, uh, rescue group. And she becomes a reading to the, the kid's dog. And another one who ends up uh, having to leave her little old person when her little old person has to go to, to a nursing home. And that dog ends up getting trained and becoming the nursing home dog. Another one is a bloodhound who ends up becoming very good at finding lost pets. But I had about five or six of those either written or premised. That's very creative, and Charlotte. I'd love to put those back out. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'd love to see those. Oh, well, good. Yeah. I think I will go ahead. Maybe I'll make those my uh, NaNoWriMo project this year. <laughs> <laughs> you are so energetic, Charlotte. You've got so many things that you're doing that are very creative and are helping oh, so many people. Lived. Yeah. So any goals for the future? Yeah, I'll get those books out. <laughs> get the books out, all right. Well, I'm hoping to be able to go back to judging soon. 
Okay. I really enjoy judging, um, mm-hmm. and I would like to become, uh, right now I can judge all levels of AKC rally and everything in ASCA in mm-hmm. both uh, rally and obedience. In AKC, I can judge novice, anything that says novice, but I'm still waiting to get to be able to do my last observation for the AKC to become certified at novice level so I can mm-hmm. go on to open. And then, of course, utility. For ASCA, however, I've gotten an, a wonderful opportunity to judge in Europe two different times now. So oh. My husband likes to brag that his wife is an international judge. You know, that is like, okay. wonderful. <laughs> For those that don't know, why don't you share with the audience what ASCA means? Yeah, Australian Shepherd Club of America. And they have all of the same titles that AKC has, uh, which they started doing before they became a club, uh, before the AKC started even recognizing uh, Australian Shepherds. And so they, they kept it up, and they're a wonderful place. You do not even have to have an Australian Shepherd to become part of that society if you want to. It's not uncommon for there to be a number of non-Aussies at an Aussie trial mm-hmm. where it's less expensive and it is run still very professionally. The dogs still get all of the same titles and experience and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of my students have shown in both. Well, Ella, for instance. Yeah. She's one who shows in both. Yeah, yeah that's exciting. So, Charlotte, is there anything else that you'd like to share with the audience? This has been an awesome conversation. I've really enjoyed it. Well, one more thing I think I'd like to share. If there okay. was some way to do this, I would wish there was some research project that we could do that would prove this. They think now that we've had dogs for as long as forty to 50,000 years. And there are a few anthropologists who feel that perhaps we started a peaceful relationship with a wolf possibly as much as 100,000 years ago. Now, in that period of time, we have developed a, a dog the dog is, is human-made, not God-made, if you want to put it that way. We developed the dog, and we developed an animal that is better off for having us in their lives. But in that period of time, is it not also logical that we developed a human who is better off for having dogs in our lives? Mm-hmm. It seems so to me. Mm-hmm. Very much so. Too. Yeah. I totally believe and that. That's better. Yeah. Well, that's a that's a beautiful way to to end this episode, Charlotte. Oh well, thank you. I have really enjoyed our talk. I have too. I've yeah. learned so much about you, and I've I've known you over the years <laughs> through teaching class, you know, rally and obedience, yeah. and yeah. Um, so I really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks for sharing. Oh, thank you. I sure appreciate this. Anytime, and I I hope to see you at some trial coming up soon. I okay. hope so. I hope so. Yeah. Thanks so much, okay. Charlotte. Our interactions and the lessons we learn from those furry animals is what, at the end of the day, makes the bond between us incredibly educational. The concepts of taking care, especially with young children and dogs, doesn't just help us to understand how important it is to learn these little bits, but to then implement them into our lives to continue to enhance the bond and generate the respect that is a required piece of the equation in our relationships with animals. Thanks for taking the time to listen to this episode of the Animal Academy podcast. Detailed contact information and links for each of the guests and resources provided inside this episode can be found at my website, animalacademypodcast.com. I'm Allison White, licensed clinical social worker specializing in the human-animal connection. Let's share and learn from the animals in the next episode of the Animal Academy podcast.